podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. All right, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. And as we uh, turn there, and in the Bible that we're reading from today, that is on page 600. And 14, 614, if you have that Bible. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39. Okay. Um, I, I will tell you, I want to say thank you um, just publicly to the whole team who covered for my wife and I last week as we went on a, a little trip to Hawaii. And I, I just want to tell you guys, all of you who made fun of us on Facebook and all you haters out there, uh, you know, it's all good. But I will say this. Wes did an incredible job um, preaching last week, and I hope you, yeah, go ahead. If you're going to commit to it, give it all you got, okay? Um, Wes, thank you so much for your faithfulness to Scripture. I heard a lot of great, great comments on that, and, and I will tell you this. Uh, Wes and, uh, is an incredible addition to our elder team, and uh, as we grow and develop as a team, it's great to have multiple gifted teachers so that we can get a variety of voices that are preaching the same gospel, and I'm so thankful that Wes is using his gifts to benefit us. Thank you so much. Here's what we have learned in Romans chapter 8. I will tell you this. I have got to the point in this book where I am convinced I cannot run through the whole book every, every, every sermon to try to catch you up to Romans chapter 8. Last night I got the chance to preach at Living Streams and they wanted me to go through eight chapters of Romans uh, in 30 minutes and an overview of eight chapters of Romans and that was extremely hard. And then while I was preaching, I realized I try to do this every week. No wonder I, I, I can preach for very short. I got 35, 40 minutes. I could just preach the text instead of trying to do an overview every week. So I, I will do this. I'm going to talk to you about what we have been learning in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, which has been an incredible text to go through. But here's the things that we've been learning. You'll see some of these up on the slide. That there is now no condemnation against us. The sinners that we are, there is no condemnation against us because God has united us with Christ. Because we are in union with Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means we don't have to prove ourselves any longer. That nothing, no condemnation can come against us because we are in union with Christ. The other thing that we see that is powerful is God has unzipped our flesh and lives inside of us by His Spirit. And His people have a new spiritual mentality. Because of the work of the Spirit, God not only has made us right and justified us, and because we are in Christ, there's no condemnation, but we're not just in Christ. Christ by His Spirit is in us. Here's what we have to recognize, and the gospel frees us from trying to work our way into God's love and grace. It frees us from striving and effort. It, it frees us from using our own strength and efforts to try to earn something that God has so freely given to us. But what it does is not only frees us from our own effort, but it empowers us with this greater power of the Spirit that always outperforms legalism. 
always outperforms our efforts. That we are not alone. His power is in us. His spirit is in us. And we have a new spiritual mentality. What else we have learned is that the spirit takes away our fear of God and draws us near to God with a new sense of him as father. No longer do we look at God as this far distant dictator. But we see him by the spirit as our father and we have his spirit in us crying out abba father we are adopted sons and daughters of god we are children of god the spirit bears witness to that the other thing is this the whole of creation will someday be released back into true shalom when god's children inherit the glories of our redemption that all of the world is groaning. All of creation is groaning for that day where the children of God will be revealed and redemption will be full and complete and there will be no more sickness and no more pain and the world will see in full this redemptive plan unfold and the people of God who are groaning for that, the children of God, all of creation is groaning for that day where we will see true shalom. Now, the last thing that we see, and Wes did an incredible job unpacking this last week, so I won't even try, but here's what we see, that God is always at work for our good, conforming us to the image of Jesus. He is making us, He is working in us by His Spirit, conforming us into the image of Jesus. Now, when we hear these things, that we have just looked at in chapter 8. There's always been something that has, I'll just say, boggled my mind. Now, I, let me give you a little bit of my background because I come from um, a very rigid, conservative background when I was younger. My younger years, my, my parents pastored in a very rigid, conservative, but I would say theologically sound background. And then later on in my life, there was this turning point and, and our family kind of moved into a, a charismatic kind of persuasion where, where there was a lot more emotion and a lot more, a, a lot more of what they would call the spirit. And so there was this real sense of excitement and, and charisma. And maybe not always rooted in the deepest of, of theological conviction, but there was a lot of passion and excitement. And then as I've grown in my life and even in my convictions and grown in theology and, and, and we were pastoring for many years in kind of that charismatic movement. But now that we've become what some would call reformed theologically or Calvinistic theologically, now we have that what, what, is always, what has always interested me is that people would say, well, now that you are reformed are you far more reserved are you not as emotional now that you are reformed like like the reformed people are just stiff-necked they don't have any passion for this they just know it all up here in their head and then this other side of wild kind of charismatics who know nothing but they are woo you know what i'm saying they're in it And I've been asked multiple times, now that you've kind of moved into this reform camp and you're part of redemption and all this kind of stuff, are you far less 
emotional, charismatic. And here's the part that I don't, it has not registered with me yet. When you hear stuff like this, when you go through, you have been reunited with Christ and he's unzipped you and his spirit lives inside of you and God by his spirit has brought us near and we get to call him father and all of creation is growing, groaning for this day where all things will be shalom and the children of God will be revealed and redemption will be full and God is always conforming us into the spirit of his son. When we hear these kinds of things, how can we not deeply responsive to that how can that not affect us i i'll just put it this way the more theological i become the more i hear the gospel the more it affects the very core of my emotion and the very core of who i am and the more my response becomes far deeper i'm not just yelling because i think god will love me if i yell loud I know God loves me and that causes me to shout out to that good and glorious and gracious king. Now, Paul is everybody's favorite reformed theologian, right? He's everybody's favorite. He's, if, 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 if anything, this is where the reformers of old found the deepest, most exciting parts of their theological persuasion. And what we've been hearing all throughout Romans chapter 8 and, and all through that Romans, the first, the first eight chapters has been this deep, rich theological truths. And what we see here and starting from Romans 8 chapter 31 through 39, if you will, is Paul is so overwhelmed by these truths <laughs> that now he gets to this place in verse 31 where he erupts with this overwhelming response that if all of this is true what does this mean that he's sitting and writing these truths and he's and the spirits working through as he's penning them and if you will just kind of picture with me that Paul is is putting these things down and writing these truths and this eruption of overwhelming love just starts flooding through him and he begins to pen what many of us have heard before but I want us to contextualize this as much as we can that this is not some dry stale passionless quote this is an eruption an outburst of overwhelming joy now with that in mind let's stand together and read Romans chapter 8 verse 31 through 39 page 614 if you're using our pulpit Bibles what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all who will he not how will he not also with him graciously give us all things who shall bring any charge against God's elect it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who has raised. 
who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are neglected as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh Jesus, would you come by your spirit and reveal to us these words. Would you open up our eyes and that these things, these truths that we've been studying for over a year and a half would not just be head knowledge to us God but let it let our hearts be convinced today let us be convinced by the gospel let us be so overwhelmed that our hearts would erupt with deep conviction that we are loved by you in Jesus name the church said amen you may be seated listen to this eruption here's how he starts he starts with questions First, he says, what shall we say to all these things? All these things, meaning maybe all the things that we just went through. If God is for us, who could be against us? Oh, I'm sorry, that's, that's, that's not, but what shall we say to all these things? It's a response to all the things we just went through. He had these deep thoughts about the gospel. He, he knew the gospel, and, and he knew the power of the gospel. He's, he's not ashamed of the gospel. Remember, he finds his identity and his relationships. He, he understands the gospel, and it's so real in his life that it pushes him to this edge of eruption, and he, he speaks. What do we say when we hear these things? What is it that we should say to all these things? And he responds to that first question with other questions. And here is the first one of those, and we see it up here on the screen. If God is for us, who can be against us? Notice he didn't say that no one is against us. Notice he didn't say that nothing will come against us. Remember, he just talked about, we'll go through suffering. We'll go through trials. He just talked about, he's not saying that nothing will come against us. Why? Because we have many things that try to come against us. Flesh, the devil, this present age. All these things are coming against us. I love what Ray Ortland says in his commentary about this question here. He said, the God who is never defeated by evil, but always uses evil for good. The God who can never be outflanked or surprised or wearied or perplexed. This God is for us. And if this God is for you, then God would have to be defeated for you to be defeated. This is the eruption that comes out of Paul's heart. If God is for me, who can be against me? Not that nothing will ever not come against you. Not that you will never face suffering because he promises one of the benefits of being a child of God is you get to suffer with Christ. But that's the benefit. That in suffering, the God who cannot be defeated is for you. And in order for you to be defeated, God himself would have to be defeated. 
when someone grasps the depth of the gospel, they are, they are aware of suffering, but they suffer differently. Why? Because they know God is for them. The God who controls all things. The God who uses evil for good. He never comes and is surprised. He's never perplexed. He's never defeated. If these things are true, if all that, that Wes was talking about last week through, through the study of that, that depth of what we see in God, that He has predestined us, He has elected us, He's, he's called us, if this is true... This God is for us. Who can be against us? Oh, why do we need to hear the gospel over and over again? Why do we need the truths of the gospel to sink so deep into our hearts? Why do we need these things that we've been studying throughout Romans chapter 8? Because when we hear these truths, an eruption of the realities of who we are in Christ begin to make our feet solid give us a place and a, and a mindset it gives our, our eyes something to fix upon hear this today my friends if God is for you who can be against you the second question we see up here on the screen is this he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things now, there are some people who love this verse because of this last line. God will give us all things. Woo! I get that car. Give me that money. There's some of those who call themselves followers of Christ who love this verse. Not because of what it means, but because what they want it to mean. Notice, God doesn't say, will not God give you all things? There are so many who use this verse so far out of its context, so far out of its heart. And they use it as a verse to hold God to some promise. Look, God, you promised me you will give me all things because you died on the cross. The realities of what he is proclaiming here are far richer than just you being prosperous and having tons of money and cars and health. Notice God doesn't say he will give you all things. What do we see here is if that was true, many of us in just a moment could call God a liar because we could go, well, I don't have this and I really want it. I'm missing out on this. And if God says He's going to give me all things, then I really want that and He hasn't given it to me. And He promised it. So He's a liar. And we could begin to use God's Word and hold it against Him in ways in which it was never intended. I, I, I want us to understand that here's the context for which He says, will he not also, with him graciously, give us all things. Here's the context. He starts by saying, 
I've already given, God has already given the most valuable, amazing gift of all. There is nothing more lavish than him giving his son and laying upon us all of his grace and mercy. God is glorified by lavishing his mercy upon us without regard to the cost that it came to himself. He shows us this is the most lavish gift of all. God did not spare his son. What is he showing us? If God would give us all the most lavish gifts of all, why did he give that first gift? Well, the reason to which he gave that first gift was so that he could, as Wes talked about last week, make us into the image of his son. God's expressed goal, God's heart for us is as His people that, the, that His work and, and what he's, he's trying to do, what, he is, what He's not trying, what He is doing is making us and conforming us into the image of His Son. And here's what Ray Orland, and I'm quoting him a lot, but believe me, you read the book and you will be quoting him also. But this is why Paul asks the question in light of the cross, of God's Son. Yes, we do suffer deprivation in this life, but God wants us to know that He withholds nothing that we need to become like Christ and live forever with Christ. God takes bold, whatever it takes attitude towards you and me. He stands ready to give whatever we need to prepare us for heaven. This is the reality of this promise. If, if God has secured our future with Him, if God has promised that He will take us into that eternity with Him, then what He is doing now is saying, if God would give us the most lavish gift of all, He's not going to nickel and dime us now. He's going to spare no expense so that you would be formed into the image of Christ. He's going to pay every price it needs to be paid for your sanctification. Sanctification is conforming you into the image of Christ. That He's doing the work and He's also rich enough to complete that work, to sustain that work. We hear things like this and if our hearts are evil and wicked, we're disappointed because we admit to the fact that we don't want God we want his stuff, and we loved the thought that this verse meant he had to give us all the things we wanted. But hear me on this. When we are disappointed about verses like this that we've held against God, that you will give us all things, the problem is not that God is a failure. The problem is you devalue Christ. That's why he puts that question in context to Christ as the most valuable gift. When Christ is the most valuable gift, we need nothing else. When we have Christ, we have all we need. We have God's very best. So God did not fail when we have all of these things that we think that we need and he seemingly is not providing them for us. The problem is not God's failure. It's that we do not value Christ at His highest place. 
Here's the other question he asks. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? <laughs> you got to listen to Wes's when it comes up on podcast. If you don't understand this election and all these kinds of things that start to come because the Father has chosen us. Jesus has paid our price and we are in union with him. Jesus is pleading our case and the Spirit is helping us. Hear that. The Father's chosen us. Jesus has paid the price and now we are in union with Jesus. So everything that is true about Jesus is true about us. And also we have this great advocate, this great lawyer, this great one that Jesus that is pleading our case before the judge. The Spirit is helping us. If this is all true, that the Father's chosen us and we have this great one who's paid our full debt and is pleading our case and we have his spirit. If all of that is true, here's what Paul is saying. Who can win a case against them? Who could win a case when the judge, the father, has chosen you? When the debt that's against you has been fully paid? When your lawyer is Jesus himself pleading your case? And when you have his spirit living within you, who could stand and bring a, a charge against you? Who could win that case? Here's the truth. Even our own hearts accuse us sometimes. Many of us, many of us think that we have no right to enjoy God because of all the things that we've done. We don't deserve him. What we do deserve is to be miserable Christians for the rest of our life. Thank God that we're forgiven. We just need to be miserable because we deserve to be miserable. We think grace is cheap. We have to pay our own dues. But the reality of this is what Paul is saying as he's shouting out in response to the gospel these questions. Nothing could be brought against me. If I believe that the Father has chosen me, if I believe Jesus has paid the price and is pleading my case, if I believe that the Spirit of God lives within me, who am I to even judge myself? Who am I to even accuse myself? Who am I to live a life in which I'm trying to punish myself? The last question he shouts out is this who shall separate us from the love of Christ Paul looks around at all things and you can look at this text we've heard it he looks around at all things in creation Paul looks around at all things and he begins can height nor depth can can angels what, what, what can separate us? he goes through this whole list of what can separate us from the love of God I'm going to tell you how personal this this is to me I lived a life for many years where I faced many fears and the root of those fears was the fact that I felt deep inside that I had to earn position earn position in the world earn position in family earn position with God so I had all of these weights of expectations and things that I had laid upon myself and I wasn't until I heard and understood the gospel that I was freed because at the end of every year 
and smattered throughout the year, but mostly at the end of every year, I would go into, and this is not diagnosed, but it's the only way I can explain it, is what I would call depression. I would sleep for days. I would lay around. I couldn't, it would affect my relationship with my wife, my family. It would affect the way that I'd pastor. I'd leave services and just be so, so drained. I'd put on a face and try to, try to prove that. I'd look out in this room and try to find value by how many people were in the room. I would live my life just trying to earn God's love. And weeks that I felt good and things were online, I felt like, God, you have to love me because look at all the things that are around me. But truth be told, I was covering up a lot of fear inside of me. I had a lot of fears. I could start naming them, but many of them had to do with, am I living up? to these things. I'm not living up to these things. I'm going to die. I would lay in bed at times and just think, I'm going to die. Make up things that were going on in my body, things that were going on around me. Think of the worst case scenarios that I could go through. This is going to fall apart. I would have dreams night before I would come in and preach that that I would show up and nobody would be here. (laughs) Still, I'm worried about you guys. I would think up the worst case scenarios. And in order to try to deal with worst case scenarios, here's how I was both taught religiously and developed internally. What some people would tell me is, listen, in order to combat those fears, speak good things. Speak good things over yourself. Matter of fact, if you would say something positive, they would say, don't speak that over yourself. Or negative. Don't speak that over yourself. Like if you said, man, I feel a little sickness coming on. They'd be like, don't speak that over yourself. No, I I just sneezed. I'm feeling a little sickness coming on. (laughs) Don't speak that over yourself. I'm literally vomiting. I'm not speaking it. This is actually happening. There's power in your words, so say positive things. And so I remember multiple times where I would try to pull myself out of this depression by just saying positive things, that this is all going to get better. This is all going to get better. I am going to reach those goals. Those dreams that I have are your dreams, God. There's going to be thousands of people. I remember walking through sanctuaries and just saying, there will be thousands of people. I try to encourage myself with, there will be thousands. This will be happen. I will be successful once all these things happen. I will be successful once this takes place. This is going to happen. I'd work myself up to try to, to try to speak positive things and just believe harder. That is what someone told me faith was. Say positive things. The interesting thing about this text is all of that speak positive things begins to fall apart when Paul says, think of the worst things that you could think of. Imagine with me all of the worst. Think of... Do your worst to think of the worst things about what could happen. He starts going, could height or death or life or death, could angels or devils, think of all the worst. Do your worst to come against the gospel with all your worst case scenarios. And then another way that I tried to handle it, because that never worked, I would 
build up other expectations and build myself even up higher and higher. And then a few months later realize I'm more depressed than I was before. Telling myself positive things set my expectations even higher. Made God look to me like he failed. So then I started going, you're stupid. Why do you think of these things? When I'd start to fear things, I would not speak positive things, but I would start to tell myself, that's dumb, don't think that. I would lay in bed, struggling that I was going to die, and tell myself, you're not going to die. <laughs> Let me tell you that. I am going to die. <laughs> we all are going to die. Think you're, you didn't know that? You're going to die. I'm going to die. Me laying in bed telling myself I'm not going to die is not, it's not helpful. Don't think that. That's negative. That's fearful. Don't think that. That's dumb. And so I beat myself up for thinking fearful thoughts. I didn't get what Paul was trying to say in this text. Matter of fact, you would think Paul was such a pessimist. He's going, think, imagine the worst things you can imagine. Think about the craziest things you could ever think about. And he lists them for you. If you can't think, I'll help you out. Here you go. What does he say? Tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Nakedness was my scariest one. Sword? Some of you are like, that's something to be scared of? Nakedness? Sword? Danger? He starts to go through all of these things. He says, do your worst. Put up your best. Throw out there the most horrible imaginations that you can. I'm like, that's depressing. And then he quotes scripture. For your sake, we're all being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep going to the slaughter. That's a, that's a coffee mug verse if you've ever found one, you know. Stand on that verse. We're being killed all day long. <laughs> Write that on a t-shirt and wear it around. I mean, this is depressing. This is... Why? Because what he's showing us is that positive speech and positive thought and positive confession has no power. Here's the other thing. Your fearful imagination. Go ahead and think your worst. It has no power. Come up with the worst thing that could happen to you. It has no power over what he's about to go into. Why? Because what he shows us is this. The gospel is what has the power to crush. To crush. To literally destroy the deepest fears that we could have in our hearts. What does he go into? He starts going to know all of these things. What does he say? We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And here's what I realized as I began to understand the gospel by the Spirit of God, by His grace, is that not, nothing, go to the next slide, nothing 
will ever separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's, here's the truth. I remember sitting in a car with some people really important to me who were going through depression, 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 literal depression. Their minds were running wild. And they were trying the two tactic that, that I tried for years. And, and I remember sitting there just pleading with them, hear me on this. And they go, I know that Jesus loves me. I know that Jesus loves me. And they're going, but I can't think that. I can't think. And, and, and I feel dumb for thinking these thoughts. And I said, what if you thought you're worse? Matter of fact, what if all of those things actually happened? Is God's love more powerful than that? No matter if any of those things happen, if you suffer for the rest of your life, if you are in poverty and nakedness and depression, if all of these things are true, are those things determining how much God loves you? Here's how you begin to deal with fear in your life. It's by comparing it to the love of God. Your sufferings do not define you. The love of God defines you. Your persevering confidence in this love is what gives you great victory. What do we see here? All my hope for happiness is secure in God's salvation through Christ. All my hope for happiness comes from the security of my confidence in Christ. He doesn't give this gift only to take it back later. Do you hear me on that? He's not saying, here's my love, and you got to keep it, or I'm going to take it back. No, he, he says nothing, nothing will be able to take this away. He is committed to me. Come what, is, come what may, now and forever. What does that mean for the Christian? By God's grace, I will live, and hear me this, I will die believing these words. Let me demonstrate the transforming power of the gospel in my community and around the world. And the way that that is demonstrated is not by me saying, think positive things or don't think these things. It's by setting your heart and mind upon the gospel and letting the weight of the gospel crush every fear. How could we not be overwhelmed by that? That if all that is true about Christ is true about me, if all that is true about this gospel that is preached, if all that is true about I am sinful deep to the core, if all of that is true but God justified me, redeemed me, made me right, He paid the debt that I could never pay, He's brought me into union with Him, He's breathed His Spirit into me, He's taking me to this final shalom where I will rule and reign with Him. All of these things are true. What can come against that? What can separate you from that? Does anything have more power than that? No. Just in case you're struggling with the answer, it's no. Nothing has more power than that. And when we believe that, we're more than conquerors. When we believe that, not, we're not just conquerors. We're more than conquerors. When we believe that, we're, we're loved. 
We don't have to look for love anywhere else. We are loved. When we believe that, we are rich. Whether we have lots of money or not, we are rich. When we believe that, we are fully restored. 